Walden, or Life in the Woods by Henry D. Thoreau. Economy. When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods a mile from any neighbor in a house which I had built myself on the shore of Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, and earned my living by the labor of my hands only. I lived there two years and two months. At present, I'm a sojourner in civilized life again. I should not obtrude my affairs so much on the notice of my readers if very particular inquiries had not been made by my townsmen concerning my mode of life, which some would call impertinent, though they do not appear to me at all impertinent. But considering the circumstances, very natural and pertinent. Some have asked what I got to eat, if I did not feel lonesome, if I was not afraid, and the like. Others have been curious to learn what portion of my income I devoted to charitable purposes, and some, who have large families, how many poor children I maintained. I will therefore ask those of my readers who feel no particular interest in me to pardon me if I undertake to answer some of these questions in this book. In most books, the I or first person is omitted. In this, it will be retained. That, in respect to egotism, is the main difference. We commonly do not remember that it is, after all, always the first person that is speaking. I should not talk so much about myself if there were anybody else whom I knew as well. Unfortunately, I am very confined to this theme by the narrowness of my experience. Moreover, I on my side require of every writer, first or last, a simple and sincere account of his own life, and not merely what he has heard of other men's lives. Some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land, or if he has lived sincerely, it must have been in a distant land to me. Perhaps these pages are more particularly addressed to poor students. As for the rest of my readers, they will accept such portions as apply to them. I trust that none will stretch the seams in putting on the coat, for it may do good service to him whom it fits. I would fain say something, not so much concerning the Chinese and Sandwich Islanders as you would, you who read these pages, who are said to live in New England. Something about your condition, especially your outward condition or circumstances in this world, in this town, what it is, whether it is necessary that it be as bad as it is, whether it cannot be improved as well as not. I have traveled a good deal in Concord, and everywhere, in shops and offices and fields. The inhabitants have appeared to me to be doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways. What I have heard of Brahmins sitting exposed to four fires and looking in the face of the sun, or hanging suspended with their heads downward over flames, or looking at the heavens over their shoulders until it becomes impossible for them to resume their natural position, while from the twist of the neck nothing but liquids can pass into the stomach, or dwelling chained for life at the foot of a tree, or measuring with their bodies like caterpillars the breadth of vast empires, 
or standing on one leg on the top of pillars. Even these forms of conscious penance are hardly more incredible and astonishing than the scenes which I had witnessed. The twelve labors of Hercules were trifling in comparison with those which my neighbors have undertaken, for they were only twelve and had an end. But I could never see those that these men slew or captured any monster or finished any labor. They had no friend, Lola's, to burn with a hot iron the root of the hydra's head, but as soon as one head has crushed, two spring up. I see young men, my townsmen, whose misfortune it is to have inherited farms, houses, barns, cattle, and farming tools, for these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Better if they had been born in open pasture and suckled by a wolf, that they might have seen with clear eyes what field they were called to labor in, who made them serfs of the soil, while... Should they eat their sixty acres when man is condemned to eat only his peck of dirt? Why should they begin digging their graves as soon as they are born? They have got to live a man's life, pushing all these things before them and get on as well as they can. How many a poor mortal soul have I met, well nigh crushed and smothered under its load, creeping down the road of life, pushing before it a barn 75 feet by 40, its aging stables never cleansed, and 100 acres of land, tillage, mowing, pasture, and woodlot. The portionless who struggle with no such thing and necessary inherited encumbrances find it labor enough to subdue and cultivate a few cubic feet of flesh. But men labor under a mistake. The better part of the man is soon plowed into the soil for compost. By a seeming fate commonly called necessity, they are employed, as it says in an old book, laying up treasures which moth and rust will corrupt and thieves break through and steal. It is a fool's life, as they will find when they get to the end of it, if not before. It is said that Deucalion and Pyrrha created men by throwing stones over their heads behind them. Inde genus durum sumus, experience laborum, e de documente, damus que simis origine nati, or as Raleigh rhymes in, it, in this sonorous way. From thence our kind heart, hard-hearted is, enduring pain and care, approving that our bodies of a stony nature are. So much for a blind obedience to a blundering oracle, throwing the stones over their heads behind them and not seeing where they fell. Most men, even in this comparatively free country, through mere ignorance and mistake, are so occupied with effect cares and superfluously coarse labors of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. Their fingers from excessive toil are too clumsy and tremble too much for that. Actually, the laboring man has not leisure for a true integrity day by day. He cannot afford to sustain the manliest relations to men. 
his labor would be depreciated in the market. He has no time to be anything but a machine. How can he remember well his ignorance, which his growth requires, who has so often to use his knowledge? We should feed and clothe him gratuitous, gratuitously sometimes and recruit him with our cordials before we judge him. The finest qualities of our nature, like the bloom on fruits, can be preserved only by the most delicate handling, yet we do not treat ourselves nor one another thus tenderly. Some of you, we all know, are poor, find it hard to live, or sometimes, as it were, gasping for breath. I have no doubt that some of you who read this book are un unable to pay for all the dinners which you have actually eaten, or for the coats and shoes which you are wearing or are, are already worn out. And I've come to this page to spend borrowed or stolen time robbing your creditors of an hour. It is very evident what mean and sneaking lives many of you live, for my sight has been wetted by experience, always on the limits, trying to get into business and trying to get out of debt, a very ancient slaw, called by the Latins, ace alienum, another's brass, for some other coins were made of brass, still living and dying and buried by others brass always promising to pay, promising to pay, tomorrow and dying today, insolvent. Seeking to curry favor, to get custom, by how many modes, not on, only not state prison offenses, lying, flattering, voting, contracting yourselves into a nutshell of civility, or dilating into an atmosphere of thin and vaporous generosity, that you may persuade your neighbor to let you make his shoes, or his hat, or his coat, or his carriage, or impart his groceries for him, making yourselves sick, that you may lay up, a, lay up something against a sick day, something to be tucked away in an old chest or in a stocking behind the plastering, or more safely, in the brick bank, no matter where, no matter how much or how little. I sometimes wonder that we can be so frivolous. I may also say almost say, as to attend to the gross but somewhat foreign form of servitude called Negro slavery. There are so many keen and subtle masters that enslave both North and South. It is hard to have a Southern overseer. It is worse to have a Northern one. But worst of all, when you are the slave driver of yourself, talk of a divinity in man. Look at the teamster on the highway, wending to market by day or night. Does any divinity stir within him? His highest duty to fodder and water his horses. What is destiny to him compared with the shipping interests? Does not he drive for squire make a stir? How godlike, how immortal is he? See how he cowers and sneaks, how vaguely all the day he fears, not being immortal nor divine, but the slave and prisoner of his opinion of himself fame won by his own deeds. Public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with our own private opinion. What a man thinks of himself, that is, which determines or rather indicates his fate. His self-emancipation even in the West Indian provinces of the fancy and imagination, what Wilberforce is there to bring that about? 
Think also of the ladies of the land weaving toilet cushions against the last day, not to betray too green an interest in their fates, as if you could kill time without injuring eternity. The mass of men leave lives, lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work, but it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things.